Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa and Tales to Terrify. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Ding dong merrily on high. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, wherever you're nursing your hangovers, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 87. This is your host, Nicholas eaton Clark, feeling bright and breezy after the festive gorge. I do hope you all had a good festive season, sharing time with friends and family. It's what it's all about, isn't it? This week, we close out 2015 with a couple of strange little tales, beginning with The Judges by Andrew Cosma. Andrew hails from Yorktown, Virginia, and currently lives in Houston, Texas. He is a graduate of George Washington University with an MFA from the University of Florida and a PhD from the University of Houston. He writes most everything creative, though currently focuses on young adult science fiction and fantasy novels. His work has been or will be published in Drabblecast, Daily Science Fiction, Albedo One and Stupefying Stories. The story is read for you by Seth Williams. Seth is a reader, sailor and retail banker in that order who lives on the south coast of Massachusetts in the US. Not a writer, but a lover of genre fiction and the spoken word. He can be contacted at theboojum.org. This is his first appearance as a narrator for Farfetched Fables, though you may have heard him promoting our patron page. And now, The Judges by Andrew Cosma. The judges would not leave him alone. They followed him home to work, watched him while he walked the dog, spied on his first dates, and checked him out while he was checking himself out in the mirror. Even while he was using the bathroom, they watched his every move. Oh, the judges didn't say anything. That was part of the problem. They didn't judge him in a way that was either morally approving or disapproving. Instead of talking, they used numbers. They used giant head-sized cards like you'd seen on old game shows or in satires of the Olympics. There they'd be, sitting behind their desk, and they would hold up the numbers in front of their faces. Eating cereal before the cereal gets soggy with milk, 4.5. Avoiding cracks in the sidewalk, a solid 6. Dismount from a phone call with his mother, 8.7. Scrubbing behind the ears, a barely there, 0.61. Their cards hovered in their hands, unwavering. He'd never seen their faces. He'd never even seen their bodies below the waist. Their desk was made of a wood that was polished so richly it looked like desert dawn in direct light, but like congealed blood when the light was low. Their clothing was stiff as cardboard, creased with the precision of a surgeon's incisions, and had the texture of coal. Did everyone have judges judging their every move? He only ever saw his judges, so it was hard to say. Were they invisible? He was afraid to ask anyone about them, afraid that his worst fears would be confirmed. He was insane, or they were real. But over the water cooler, he asked Joe, 
Do you have judges? Joe laughed and shook his head. Don't be silly, he said. They're only judging you. He avoided Joe from then on. He began to avoid everyone. He began to work from home. He began to have his groceries ordered in. He began to wear blinders. He began to think of blinding himself. After all, it worked for Oedipus. But he wouldn't let them win. He wouldn't let the judges judge him. He learned to ignore them. When the spot of movement appeared in the corner of his eye like a man rushing to tackle him, he didn't look. They waved like the wings of pigeons in the town square descending on an old woman with a bag of seed. He did not wave back. But the judges were persistent. He knew they were still judging him. They were judges. What else could they do? They could move closer. Their desk stationed itself across the room. Then it was at arm's length, and then he could barely move without fear of brushing up against that blood-colored wood. The judges thrust their scorecard in his face. They judged his ability to ignore their judging. They judged him on his moving around the house. He stopped moving. They judged him on his breathing. He stopped breathing. The judges gave him a perfect ten. And we're going to give this story a perfect ten. Our thanks to Andrew as well as to Seth. And now for our main event, we bring you something more than a little different, a delicious bit of surreal satire by Adam Brown called Honeymoon. Adam lives in Melbourne, Australia. His story, Neverland Blues, originally appeared in 2008 in Dreaming Again 35 New Stories Celebrating the Wild Side of Australian Fiction. It won the 2009 Kronos Award for Best Short Fiction and was featured way back in episode 10 of this very podcast. His first novel, which has an unbelievably long name, I'm sure you can read it in the show notes, was published by Coeur de Lyon in 2012 and is still available as a print-on-demand illustrated hardcover. His collection of short stories, Other Stories and Other Stories, was published by Satellite in 2014 and is available as an audiobook. The story is read for you by Geoffrey Welchman. Geoffrey lives in Baltimore, Maryland, where he writes, produces and voices The Reigning Lunatic, a new medieval sitcom podcast that is quickly becoming one of our favourites. Thanks for taking the time to record this for us, Geoffrey. And now, Honeymoon by Adam Brown. Bob Rowley wasn't crazy about the band. It wasn't their music that bothered him, a light dinner jazz so inoffensive you didn't even hear it after a while, nor was it the musicians themselves, who were a standard issue in every way. Bob's problem was with the drum kit. It was biological. The bass drum was fitted with a big transgenic heart, the percussionist adjusting the beat by feathering hormone and adrenal flow. And Bob, who had been employed as a waiter for the evening, didn't like it. He gave it a wide berth whenever he had to serve the table near the stage. He was always aware of the heart beating away, its loping cadence infusing the general conversation. Creepy. Like being back in the womb, he shuddered. All he wanted was to finish his shift, hit the strip, and score. Dope, a trip, something. The specifics didn't matter. As always, Bob Rowley was ready to party. Unfortunately, for the next few hours, he was stuck here, at someone else's party. The dinner was served on the veranda of a sprawling mansion modeled after the antebellum architecture of the American South. The other waiters moved easily about its latticed expanses, filling glasses and dispensing war pills to sixty crisp and shining suitors, the sons of the sons of the men who had wrested the planet from the native Jovians. Breeding showed in their sharp eyes, whipcord muscles, and proud carriage. They sat square-shouldered in their refurbished military uniforms, everything dress-right dress, chatting easily unperturbed that soon they would be trying to kill one another. Then the band picked up its beat, going tachycardic, 
fife and drumming into a martial anthem. The men rose to attention. Out of the broad breezeway of the mansion proper and onto the porch rolled the ruined, bewheelchaired, four-star son-of-a-bitch, General Daddy. His chair was slung with medical machinery and drip bags, some carrying saline or plasma, others filled with a greenish ichor that close inspection would reveal to be mint julep. He regarded the men, as was his manner, with contempt bordering on disgust, his deep-set eyes still burning with the command his wasted body had surrendered years before. "'You boys,' he began, and there was an expectant hush. "'You boys all want to bang my Nelly!' An aghast silence. A mineral chirruping of crickets. "'Well, none of you can!' The general's face was beetroot. Dangerous blotches appeared. None of you! He gasped, suddenly succumbing to a mild aneurysm. The general's pretty nurse ran jigglingly forwards, attending to the henge of medical appurtenances that ringed the old man's chair. He tried to speak, but nothing further came. The nurse wheeled him from the room. Another silence, then scattered applause. Thing was, thought Bob, General Daddy was right. Bob knew these guys. He'd spent his whole life among men like this, pouring their drinks and pissing in their soup. And it was true. They wanted nothing more than to pluck the bramble flower of Miss Nellie's maidenhood. Who could blame them? He'd seen her around, got to know her a little in a distant way. She was young, flirtatious, an impossibility of peaches blondly topped by bedspring ringlets. But Bob knew Miss Nellie was uninterested in the usual romantic guff. For all her tool and giggles, Miss Nellie was as rock-hard as her father. Miss Nellie loved war. The only way to win her, Bob knew, was in battle. Presently she entered the veranda. The assembled gentlemen shifted in their seats, knuckles whitened on table edges. Many coughed, throats tight with longing. Bob watched with a degree of aloof amusement. Thank y'all for joining General Daddy and me at our little porch party. She batted her lashes. Her breasts wobbled improbably. We are gathered here to mark the occasion of the great spore wars, some several centuries distant now. So began an impossibly long and boring speech. Blah, blah, blah. Bob Rowley knew it all. He'd spent a lot of time plugged into the history web mainly because it was free, while smoking gannyweed and snorting volcanic ash from Io. Blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah. Spore War Four, the moon reefs, the onagers with their ballistic sperm packets. Blah, blah, blah. These men were here to reenact the battle, so why not get going? Who cared about all this historical falderall? At last, Nellie reached the end of her speech. A nervous anticipation thrilled through the room as she raised her arms. Gentlemen, she called, on your marks, get set, reenact. There ensued a general clatter as the gentlemen, brandishing silver pill tongs, plucked the war tablets off the tables and gulped them down. Instantly, the suitors crumpled, going slack, as they descended into inner space. Limp bodies sagged in wicker chairs. Nellie blew a kiss to the waiters. Some of the younger guys convulsed, pants tenting around their flies. The bass drum throbbed. The old black head waiter, whose name was simply Cool, farted eloquently. Bob smiled. He caught Nellie's gaze and held it until her maidservants, pretty little Frenchified fillies imported from Europa, bobbled her off to her chambers. Bob knew she would soon be taking her own pill. Seconds later, sprawled across a frilly four-poster, eyes vacant, she too would have joined the reenactment. She was the belle of this ball, its unofficial grand prize. I'll bet her tongue's pink as a baby's liver, one of the waiters muttered. Tell you what, Bob said, I'll let you know. The servers chuckled. The young waiters set to clearing the tables, but the older guys leaned on the walls, smoking and drinking and talking quietly. Cool farted again. The airiness of it said it all. There would be more than enough time to clean up before these candy-ashed reenactors were finished with their kiddie games. 
Bob noticed with relief that the band was packing up, the bass drum going into its big refrigerated organ transport case, its muffled beating still audible from within. Bob turned away. Around him the reenactors sprawled in their seats, empty-eyed, called to muster. Then he noticed the spare pill in the salver. The dispenser must have counted out an extra pill. He snatched it up. It was a curious thing, black and glossy and round, like a cannonball. As he watched, the surface spangled, yellow and red explosions bursting within the pill itself, and a gray fog drifted across its face, trailing a crimson mist. Faintly, he could hear cannon fire, trumpet blasts, battle cries, all of it dreamlike and distant, from inside the pill. "'Rally!' Cool shouted. "'The hell you doing?' Bob, as Bob was wont, answered in action rather than words. He popped the pill. "'Rally, you asshole!' But then Cool was gone. Bob felt the pill kicking in, like it was filled with interplanetary space, a blossoming cosmos, stars champagne-popping in his veins as he rose, burst from the heart-drum-thrumming womb of the veranda, lofting now into the upper airs, rising skyward, soaring from Jupiter's atmosphere past the clouds and into clean, cold black. Like two-lane blacktop, Bob thought, stretching on forever. Infinite potential. Freedom eternal. Wow. Bob had been high before, but never so literally. A mist began to form. It thickened, gained solidity, resolving to become steel plates, slipping and flipping into place. Walls coalesced, arching around him, burnished silver, rivet reel. With them came a closeness and sound, a low, ominous droning, and smells, cologne, sweat, machine oil, bourbon. An airplane, Bob realized, an old Earth model, a lumbering World War II bomber, maybe a B-17, one of those amazing flying fortresses, as lumpen and rattletrap brutal as something made by Vikings. Bob grinned. The plane was a fanciful detail, an anachronism woven into the trip by the Warpill's creators, but Bob approved nevertheless. He glanced through a hull-side porthole and saw flak bursting in dirty bright death puffs. Beyond, Jupiter's moons swooped bluely. So many of them, Bob thought. Too many. But no, the drug fugue had dumped him in the deep past, and he was seeing circumjovian space as it had been before Spore War IV. This, Bob realized, was Jupiter's full complement of moons, before the war had crushed most of them to dust under its heel. Now it really hit him. He was in orbit. Vacuum. Stars. Space. Space. Well, spank my ass, Bob muttered, and call me Betsy. Vertiginously, he watched as yet more moons swooped past, pocked with craters, and in those craters elbowy tangles of lurid tentacles whipped and churned. Onagers. Semi-biological siege engines belligerent coral polyps wrought from iron and oak and orange-pink satenophore flesh. Then he heard imperious voices to his left, muttering angrily. Bob was seated at one end of a long bench filled with uniformed suitors, each hunchbacked with a parachute pack. He reached behind him, finding he had a parachute too. Bob smiled to see their outrage. A farb in their midst? How dare this waiter crash their party? They muttered among themselves, the picture of righteous affront. Defenestrate the imposter! A few of them, good old boys with lynching party grins, stepped forward. Bob's smile held. Where drugs were concerned, he was a pro. He knew the feeling that portends a trip going bad, and there was none of that now. He was in no danger from these guys. He knew help was on its way. And, as the suitors hauled him from his seat, that help arrived, in the curious form of General Daddy. The general rolled into view, immediately silencing everyone. Gone was the husk, the wasted, wizened little bird man. General Daddy was transformed, 
immense, an uber-warrior, a youthful incarnation of Mars, the god himself. Even his wheelchair looked younger, gleaming and freshly chromed. Crackling a static of bone-deep meanness, he wheeled deeper into the cabin, his bulk causing the plane to tilt to one side, engines laboring. Behind him tottered his nurse, pink-flushed and flustered, her little cap askew, whites in busty disarray. Evidently, General Daddy had been taking full advantage of his recovered youth. Then Bob noticed the General's uniform. It was a wonder. The fabric was blacker than anything had a right to be, and those stars in his shoulders. Were they actual stars? The men snapped to attention. Bob watched as the General reached into his starry uniform. Not into a pocket, Bob realized, but into the fabric itself the jacket made out of the fabric of space-time, and pulled out a book. Its cover was steaming, chilled from its residence in the frozen dark between the worlds. This was the reenactor's Bible, the rules of engagement for wargamers. Gentlemen, said General Daddy, y'all know the history of Spore War Four. You know the combatants were creatures called onagers, live in war machines, the males squatting on their moons, firing their sperm packets into orbit. Y'all know, too, about the mighty queen, a moon unto herself, a veritable Selene. Blah, blah, blah. Bob sighed. If anything, the general was more boring than his daughter, rattling on and on, digressing to talk about comets how they were actually onager misfires, blah, blah, how each male onager strove for his sperm packet to be the one to get through the queen's orbital defenses, blah, 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 waxing lyrical now about the queen's dewy, innocent pink germinal nucleus, her quiveringly eager vesicle, blah, 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 and on and on. But suddenly the general was no longer talking. Bob glanced up. He'd been spotted. Who in Hades' hot name is this? The general's voice was cannon fire. A stowaway, one of the suitors declared. A fob, another added. It's true, general, Bob said, overcutten by a sudden giddy pride, a what-the-hell recklessness. I filched one of your war pills. Fire me if you like. I don't much care. I'm a pretty crappy waiter anyway, truth to tell, so I probably deserve it. But in the meantime, what's the harm in letting me tag along? Unless you're afraid, I'll show y'all up. There, Bob thought. Let's see how the old boy handles that. A pause followed. In the interstellar fabric of the general's jacket, a star swelled, burst, went nova. The light of it bathed the cabin in hard x-rays, and Bob felt his mind, his heart, and very soul were plainly visible to General Daddy's burning regard. Well the general said at last. You've got cojones, anyway, and that's the first thing a reenactor needs. You say you want to share in the reenacting experience, boy? The full experience, sir, the whole Megillah. Well, then, he said, wheeling forward, I best assign y'all a moon, hadn't I? Let's see now. He referred to his manual. How does a little old synchronous satellite called Mumpsimus sound to you? There was a burst of laughter from the suitors, quickly suppressed by a glare from the general. Bob knew something was up, but played along. Sounds swell. The general nodded, chuckled, then raised his voice. Prepare for deployment! The B-17's droning got louder as the men readied for the drop. A hatch opened, and an ethereal gale filled the cabin. Go, go, go! The suitors leapt from the plane. One, two, three... Then it was Bob's turn. Yee-haw! Falling, falling, night and dreams and stars, his clothes whipping around him, a breathless plummet, his yell freezing before his face, the Galilean moon spinning as he pinwheeled away from the train of parachuting reenactors, Jupiter off to the right, thundering pumpkin planet tumbling. The chute deployed, the canopy woven from angel's wings, ultra-fine white nothingness catching the cosmic breeze and bellying out above him. He drifted through the thin celestial black, wafting past a flotilla of Hmong sampan houseboats, their hulls fitted out for space, their engines farting diesel. Dark-skinned Thai kids waved as he fell past, onward towards his moon. 
Now he saw it. Mumpsimus. He realized why the others had laughed. The moon was a coprolite, the immense petrified turd of an orbital whale. It was gloss black and tapered, colossal rusting hulks of ancient alien spacecraft dotting the dark surface like corn kernels. The ground raced up towards him, and Bob realized he knew how to land. Knew lots of things, in fact. Knew how to strip and clean an M240 Bravo. How to lean to one side of a horse while firing a short bow. How to curse in Russian when his primitive tank was struck and the air inside sang with rivets. Knew that the word onager had, in the ancient days of Earth, meant both catapult and a mean-spirited species of wild Asiatic ass. Amazing things, these war pills, Bob thought. All that knowledge bundled up in there. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Unzipping in his brain. Then he was down, the ground crunching beneath his boots. He rolled twice and popped to his feet, the chute settling neatly behind him. Shucking the pack from his shoulders, he glanced up. The sky was all moons, some as small as gravel others so huge they had moons orbiting them in turn. He turned his attention to a few of the nearer satellites, seeing the shoots of some of the reenactors drifting down to their landing sites. Their moons looked okay, Bob thought bitterly. There was a tropical moon, lushly jungled, another that looked like a giant ruby, a great precious stone set into the ring of its orbit, still another glowing, an opal imperiously ghost-like. Bob shivered. Frost crunched beneath his feet. On the horizon, the hulk of an alien spaceship moaned low in the weirding winds. Mumpsimus, he sneered. Sourly, he patted his breast pocket. He needed a smoke. But it wasn't his breast pocket he patted. It was the breast pocket of a woolen uniform. And the lump in this unfamiliar pocket was no pack of smokes. It was a little hourglass its lower cap engraved, Break glass in case of reenactment. What the hell? He broke the glass. Sand spilled out. Bob watched, fascinated, as the sand spread in the air before him and hung there, churning like a cloud of gnats. Across this screen, images shifted, each grain a pixel, showing amazing things. Mountains, dunes, sunburned faces. It shifted again. Now he witnessed an impossible battle in which Lawrence of Arabia and General Rommel clashed fleets of living dirigibles in a desert sky. Shifting again, the screen showed Hannibal on Mars, leading a column of elephantine lobsters into a valley of whooping Comanche. Still the sand flowed and swam, expanding to include Bob himself in its flow, everything becoming muddled and uncertain, even his body no longer a sure thing. What, for example, was the deal with his hands? He held them up, the fingers branching, 
budding. Guess they'll need pruning sometime, he thought giddily, going with it, his arms and legs twisting now, the bones painlessly curling, forking to form a fleshly basket weave. He was human origami. Fold along dotted line, now turn and fold again diagonally as shown, insert flap A into slot B, C into D, flip and repeat, and again, and again. At last it was over. Blearily he looked around. What had happened to Mumpsimus? It seemed so small. Then he realized it wasn't the moon that had shrunk. It was he who had grown. He looked down at himself. He was an onager, a huge, mean, moon-squatting beast, a living, lumbering war machine, a pink-orange splay of war limbs tentacled overhead while his buttressed lower limbs, obsidian, knuckly, oaken things with big, ticking pincers, extended beyond the horizon. He was nearly as large as the moon itself, grasping it as a crab might grab a smallish stone his pincers clack-snapping around on the other side of his little world. He was impressive, no question of it, but he wasn't a pretty sight. The onager body plan was like the Pompidou Center, the Parisian museum famous for bearing its plumbing and ducts and structural members to the world. Bob had been turned inside out, everything that should have been hidden away now on open display. Blood vessels, gut works, Thick white nerve trunks, all were on show. But that was normal for an onager. They wore their hearts, and everything else, on their sleeves. Thinking about it, Bob wondered if it was a kind of evolutionary bravado, as if, as a species, they'd said, We're so tough that we've gone and put our tastiest, juiciest, temptingest bits on the outside of our bodies, and even then our enemies haven't got a hope. Perfect for those cocky bastards I rode in with, Bob thought. Then, explosions, biological artillery fire. Spore War Four had begun. Onager rounds flew left and right. Bob recognized the moons Io, Metis, and Adrastia as they swirled past, onagers riding them in their orbits like luges. These three fled another, larger moon, its landscapes of chrome and green plush wheelchair leatherette dominated by a huge old onager pulsing with bone-deep meanness. It was General Daddy in onager form. Y'all wanna bang my Nelly? The old man's voice shook the heavens. Bob ducked as the general spiraled past, his seed bombs strafing a nearby satellite, yellowy ropes of the stuff flemming across the surface. The onager on the struck moon screamed as a packet spiked into its body and started burrowing, colonizing its flesh. These sperm packets were smart things, Bob realized. If a packet hit a female, it bored in, annexing her ovaries to fertilize her ova. But if it hit a male, it sought out the testes, attacking the host's sperm cells. Soon, the host would have none of his own sperm left, his gonads bulging with his attacker's genetic material. Bob's tentacles waggled furiously. Now he was under attack. The general swooped closer. Squatting beside a mint julep sea, he raised one of his tentacles high, fresh rounds swelling its tip into a purple fist. As if in slow motion, Bob saw the meaty tower laze backward, catch, and shudder forward, saw its curious physics, its unlikely acceleration as it blurred in attack, the sperm packet rocketing closer, launching a sperm packet salvo, the round hit Bob's moon not a kilometer distant, carving a canyon. The ground sagged inward with soft rot. Another round landed, closer this time. Then another, this one smashing into one of the wrecked spaceships that littered the little moon's surface. Bob looked around wildly. The wrecked ship had gone up in smoke. It exploded with a flash so bright that Bob's exposed optical nerves thrummed like banjo strings. The packet must have hit a fuel tank, he thought. Maybe a weapons store. Another explosion. The ship flared, spewing fire, the thrust of the blast shoving Bob's moon out of the way of the general's next shot. Spinning away, Bob heard the old man cursing across the radio band. Shakily, Bob looked around as the burning ship 
guttered to silence. He was speeding through a different orbit, but he still wasn't safe. Quite the opposite. He'd stumbled into one of Jupiter's Lagrange points, a sargasso zone where dozens of moons had gathered, tumbling like coins in a rich man's purse, each with its own onager, each combatant firing wildly. Sperm packets whistled past to all sides. Bob ducked as an onager to his left took a hit, its own impotent sperm packets low arch sputtering in a pitiful display. Bob choked with disgust. Rebel yells careened moon to moon, cutting a steady underwoosh of sperm packets. Packet flack burst white in the night. A dying moon roared by, spattering Mumpsimus with lava. It was horrific, hellish, everything an awful lichen-like green, the baleful shade of low-grade night-vision war footage. A pair of onagers tumbled by, locked in tentacular combat. Their moons bobbed behind them like immense rocky abdomens. Bob watched in horror as the larger of the pair reached its rope-veined limbs around the other's moon, squeezing until magma oozed from shattered valleys. Then from another direction came a machine-gun burst of boulders. Glancing back, Bob saw yet another onager, this one using its catapult to fire rocks. One grazed Mumpsimus, dislodging an ancient craft and sending Bob a-rocking. These guys were killing each other. Within his innards, or should they be called outards, Bob felt a native belligerence building, a mighty onager wrath thrumming his tentacles. Dodging and weaving, he felt his own sperm packets swelling within. He saw an onager nearby, a fat, brutish creature squatting atop an earth-huge moon, the night side of which burned bright with streetlights. A city, Bob realized. Squinting his telephoto eyes, he beheld neatly squared blocks, spear-straight streets, citizens marching in perfect military precision, even now manning their posts. The onager bellowed, and the city's artillery swung as one to aim directly at Bob. Bastard! Mumpsimus shook with the impact. Dust clouded Bob's vision, his moon shaking violently. Bob spun, pitching and yawing. His inverted sweat glands sprayed like garden sprinklers. His ammunition continued to build within him, swelling, the load massing, thrumming. But still he held fire, waiting for an opening. Another hit. Still Bob held fire. Mumpsimus now lacked a southern hemisphere. But that was okay, Bob realized. It made the moon even lighter than before, even more maneuverable. Deftly, Bob corkscrewed away from another wave of cannonballs. Flanking his fat opponent, he let his firing arm swing back, held, held, fired. Pachoo! His opponent's limbs twisted spastically as Bob's genetics burrowed down into pink-orange corpulence. Bob laughed in triumph. It was on. This spore war business was scary, sure as Saturn, but it was exciting, too. A grand trip. Big and wild and absolutely new. The stakes were high, and Bob Rowley, if nothing else, had always been a high roller. He bet all his chips and went into a dive. It's simple, he thought. Be patient, be smart, and don't fall into the trap of these ramrod button polishers. Don't give in to ego. Don't grow so full of yourself that you're all load and no brains. Use their pride and convention against them. Dodging packet barrages and scooting around pockets of combat, Bob disappeared into a cloud of wreckage. Moon bits ghosted past like tumbleweeds. Here and there, deflated in defeat, ruined onagers sprawled like browning banana peels atop darkened, pockmarked orbs, weeping. Blending into this river of detritus, Bob waged a cagey campaign, darting from cover to launch stealthy, backstabbing attacks against victims bloated with menace. The pompous bastards didn't stand a chance. Sniping another suitor, Bob laughed. He was pissing in their soup again. Then an abrupt silence fell over the field of combat. A moment of stillness, followed soon after by a swift, swallowing darkness. Bob looked up and saw it. An orbital whale. It bellied above them, buoyed on thick, ethereal currents. Bob saw the wimpling underside 
the slung undercarriage of its wobbling horribles as it arched, then dived toward the clustering moons. It was immense, the night its shadow, the rain weepage from its eyes as it looped around, sweeping closer. And then, My Nelly! My Nelly! My Nelly! It was General Daddy's voice, bellowing through the Lagrange Point. And there he was, Bob saw, squatting atop the whale, riding it. He'd abandoned his moon and was bigger than ever, swollen, horrible, his livid limbs the moist brown pink of a beagle's tear ducts. He steered the whale closer, whooping, hanging on like a rodeo buck. The whale surged closer, its jaws swinging wide. Bob had time to glimpse an oral landscape. Halitosis clouds in a pink palette sky, mountainous teeth, some so tall they were capped with snow. At the last moment, Bob lurched to one side, glimpsing other combatants tumbling into the void of the whale's mouth. The monster passed, its gills leaking the screams of the swallowed. Bob clung dizzily to Mumpsimus. In all his years of dedicated drug use, this was the wildest trip of all. He whooped with elation swooping under the whale's belly. Yee-haw! But then came the tail, the colossal sweep of it sucking Bob into its whooshing wake. He spun out of control, lost in a swirl of chaos and confusion, flipping out of the Lagrange zone entirely, onager screams growing distant. At last, everything stilled. Bob drifted through empty space. Off in the distance, through the eerie green CNN glow of the Lagrange Point, spore packets streaked, the green flagellum tails ghosting behind them, like the aftertrails of tracer rounds. He made out the immense silhouette of the feeding whale, scooping up onagers like plankton. Bob laughed, happy to be out of that mess. Then he looked at his surroundings and stopped laughing. This was grim, bleak the interplanetary equivalent of a parking lot at the rear of some moribund nightclub at 1.47 a.m. on a winter's night. Above, a quasar flickered like a dying fluorescent tube. It felt like the kind of place where people got killed. Bob's olfactory buds, exposed like the seeds of a split pomegranate, winced as a powerful perfume permeated the scene. The darkness filled, presently, with a pink glow. The pinkness thickened and warbled. Bob's launch arm stiffened involuntarily. In the void formed a pink sphere, a luminescent sex-electric globe, heavy with a come-hither gravity that pulled him bodily and emotionally forward, drawing him into a closer orbit. Nelly. For Bob, it was love. He felt himself struck by the madness of the worker bee, the obsession of the drone. Here was his queen in all her honeyed loveliness. Nelly eclipsed everything. A moon divinity. A throbbing goddess wet-dream singularity. She was huge, full, rich, round, lovely. Her landscapes frilled pink and hazy with forests of perfumed tulle. Buzzing with adoration, Bob puttered loveward. This was it. He had her in his sights free and clear, while the other reenactors were busy fighting it out. But then, My Nelly! Horrified, Bob looked to one side and saw General Daddy, who, having obliterated his competition, was wheeling his whale Nelly-ward. Bob glanced back at Nelly and saw something new. Fear. Terror quivered her valleys, dimmed her pinkness. Bob's exposed heart ached to see her suffering. Nellie was afraid of her father. She was no fool. She knew the old man's goal wasn't to protect her. He wanted her for himself. But what could Bob do? He was an ill-armed poseur, and General Daddy had swollen to a red giant of fury and passion, livid and stiff with virility. The whale loomed larger, its flukes sweeping planetesimals aside as it swept closer still. Bob's tentacles waved sadly, weighted down by despair. But then, for just a moment, an impossibility blurred before his eyes. Dreamily, he saw the other waiters crouching over him where he lay on the veranda, saw, blurrily, cool, 
grinning, shaking his head, taking a drag off one of Bob's cigarettes, heard cool faintly as he exhaled a pale cloud. Be cool in there, Rally. Ride it out. Heard the other waiters clapping and whooping. Give her hell, Rally, old boy! And some part of Bob grinned. It was that old, cagey, drug-weathered part of him, the spine of his personality, the staff of his experience. Bob was a veteran, an explorer of the darkest Africas of the mind. He'd experienced every drug on the market. He'd watched his arms melt off without so much as a sniff. He'd taken elder snuff, psionic mead, id crystal, and through it all he'd always clung to some core of himself, some rat-nasty bastard piece of his character that refused ever to give in, ever to die. To the drug community he was a legend, retaining a sliver of controlled consciousness in the throes of even the direst Ganymedian deathweed. And now that spark of himself had returned, ushered in by Cool's grudging amusement and Nellie's fear. It's only a trip. Keep your head straight. It's only a trip. A little calmer now, he looked around. He had to hide. But where? General Daddy was almost there. Play possum, Bob told himself. It was his only chance. With no cover in sight, he could only play dead. Perhaps General Daddy, blinded by Nellie's beauty and expecting only raw aggression from any surviving onager, would overlook him. Bob flattened himself against the remains of Mumsimus, tentacles drooping dreadlock limp. He was aware of the whale's arrival. He risked a peek. General Daddy surged grandly toward the pink prize. Apparently he hadn't noticed Bob at all. But, Daddy, the Nellie Moon cooed, where are all the handsome young gentlemen? My sugar plum Nellie, General Daddy pulsed powerfully, his red glow dovetailing into Nellie's pinks. Nellie shuddered, her soft mountains bobbling improbably. But, Daddy, you promised. I promised you a champion, my dear, dear Nellie. General Daddy's launch tentacle stiffened like the tail of a scorpion. I've been in so many battles, lived so many wars. He closed on her, his proximity triggering Nellie's vulval canyons to fold involuntarily into pink existence. They glowed like the back door to heaven, soft and welcoming, promising eternal rest and sweet euphoria. Nellie pleaded, Daddy, you said you wouldn't. Oh, my, my Nelly, Nelly! And General Daddy's pulsing tentacle tilted backward, ready to engage. Then, fluff-a-foom! Bob's first rocket attack was a bullseye. The ship he'd flung had been a modest one, one of the smaller wrecks on his moon, but full of fuel. It smacked into the whale's belly, cruelly harpooning it, bursting into flames. The whale convulsed, sending General Daddy rocking. Bob plucked up another ship and flung it forward, shouting laughter. This was madness! A frontal attack on General Daddy himself? But Bob was good with madness. The second ship gouged a vast divot from one of the whale's flukes. The monster bucked as Bob rushed forward. The general looked around, eyes wide. Who in Hades' hot name is this? he growled. He peered down at Bob, who was swiftly closing the gap. The waiter? In the general's bulging eyes, Bob read incredulity and contempt and something else. A flicker of doubt. Yet the general's tireless arrogance came to the fore again. He sneered. Prepare to pay for your insolence, sir! Bob hurtled forward, his launch tentacle flattened like the ears of a tomcat on the attack. General Daddy's launch tentacle quivered and launched. It was the moment Bob had been waiting for. He dived, the sperm packet sizzling overhead, then angled sharply up, grinning. Here she goes, Bobby boy. This is it for all the chips, the whole Magilla Gorilla. He scooped Nellie into one tentacle, his other appendages working deftly in unison. You can do this, punching the accelerators of the old spaceships that jutted from his moon. Their jets thrust the little satellite forwards, up, up, and away from the bellowing general, Nellie squealing with roller coaster glee in his arms. 
Bob whooping and hollering, Here I come, boys! as they rocketed higher and higher, out of Jupiter's orbit. And now, what was that sound? That cadence, that driving lub-dub rhythm. It was that bass drum, he realized. Maybe it wasn't so bad after all. Its pulse drawing him upward, onward, the heartbeat getting louder as he swung up out of the plane of the elliptic, out of the galaxy, out of the reenactment entirely, higher and higher, through the layers of the drug experience, until at last they surfaced in reality, standing together on the veranda, Nellie in his arms, cooing, Oh, my hero! Then she swooned. He caught her with the extra tentacles he found still attached. The waiters cheered wildly. You're one crazy bastard, Riley, Cool grinned, smoking Bob's last cigarette. He motioned toward the tentacles. But what you gonna do with them octopus arms? Using one to hoist the unconscious beauty over his shoulder and the other to snatch a bottle of chilled champagne from a nearby ice bucket, Bob winked and said, Oh, I'm sure they'll come in handy. It doesn't get much more Freudian or strange love-esque than that, dear listeners. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but you cannot change it and you cannot sell it. And be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. Violators will be frowned upon. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website, our Facebook page, or on Twitter. You don't have long to wait now, dear listeners, for our January surprise. Should I give you a hint? Should I? No. I think not. Enjoy the last day of the year. Raise a beverage to far-fetched fables and another fantastic year with all of you. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.